Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. And I don't, I don't know for, you know, Troy to say that he grew up in my ministry is quite accurate. I think we kind of grew up in ministry together. That's what I think happened. And um, praise the Lord, I love being here. I mean, love being at the church, love, love all the people, and, and hate speaking because like Pastor Troy on Sunday, like who can follow that Sunday morning? And then um, Pastor Morgan last night, and you know, who can follow that? And then, uh, you know, uh, my good friend Steve Charette this afternoon, who can follow that? And, and uh, but then who could follow Jeff or who could follow Brett or, you know, or back in the day, who, uh, how can any of us follow Mark? So, you, you know, you kind of end up just throwing everything away and saying, all right, Lord, it's all yours. Let's, let's see what happens here. So, um, but I, you know, I was so, it, it, it has started off so good because, you know, you started off right because uh, Sunday morning you had that one song about the blood and you're singing about the blood. And I can remember years ago, and this is when I was a college and career pastor, we worked with uh, international students, and so I was uh, on the regional team for an organization called NAFSA, uh, National Association of Foreign Student Affairs, and then I was on the national team, and their, uh, their conference was in Washington, D.C., so took Delana and the girls. Girls were really young at that time. We were there over a Sunday, had no transportation, but there was... A, an Episcopal church right across the street from the hotel. And I thought, well, this is an opportunity. I mean, most of the founding fathers were, uh, um, you know, Anglican, but you, you don't want the king of the country you're in rebellion from to be the head of your church. So, uh, so um, Episcopal. And um, so I thought, well, let's just go there. And so we went there. And I don't know if it was High Sunday. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, there's a, at the beginning of the service, the rector or pastor, whatever he is, goes to the, to, the, to the back and they bring some stuff out. And they, you know, they come up and they go around the entire perimeter of the sanctuary slinging incense. Have you ever been in a church like that? And they, because they are in their mind, they are in the pagan way of thinking, they are creating sacred space for worship. So yesterday morning I'm thinking, man, this is, this is a lot better. I mean, if you want to create sacred space for worship, sing about the blood. Uh, you want to drive the demons off, sing about the blood, and that creates a sacred space. And so it's just, you know, it's so good. And, and Troy nailed it, and Kenny nailed it, and, and, and Steve nailed it. And so, uh, so I'm looking forward to hitting my thumb. <laughs> Ten years ago, when I came to Harvest uh, to pastor, I adjusted our basic philosophy of of discipleship because it always bothered me in the years past that two of the goals were so similar, fellowship of believers and structure of the church, and, um, you know, I didn't quite understand that, and 
Then we went through a time uh, before I had come there where one of the um, pastors on staff went through a you know, flaming fall into flagrant fleshly sin, and he had been one of my main mentors in ministry. So obviously after it was all done, I mean, those type of things are going to either make you or break you. And if they're not going to break you, you need to do the math look for the pattern, and so I did a post-mortem. I did an accident reconstruction and tried to figure out, is there a missing piece? And my bottom line conclusion was that in terms of his inequity, not his iniquity and inequity, not conforming to the pattern, was that uh, there was no worship out of him. And so we were kind of unbiblical in our discipleship. I mean, he was Bible Bob as far as the word and doctrine were concerned, but there was no personal worship. So when I got to Harvest, I went back to the Bible. I made sure priority one uh, is going to be to ground the new believer in the worship of God. So in considering that topic today, so day one, uh, we're going to go deep. Put, put the diving bell on, maybe go deep. Day two, we're going to be doctrinal. Day, day three is your personal leadership. So we're going to plow the field, plant the seed, and then we're going to harvest the fruit. I think that we've lost the true sense of the Word of God, which is always predicated on worship. And worship is always predicated on offering, and that offering is always predicated on a blood sacrifice in fire. So worship, sacrifice, blood. Um, we have all seen in our lives or the lives of others what a lack of worship does. And I think the problem today is that what you need today will only flow from your devotion with God today. So really, all answers start with worship because all problems are worship problems. So, and this is, you know, I, I have sweated and struggled uh, over this topic more than maybe anyone I have taught on because um, worship, you know, you, you pray in the spirit, but you do that through your mind. And worship is such a hard thing to teach on because it is done by the spirit and yet it's done through your body. And yet when that spiritual thing is done through your body, it has such profound spiritual implications and effects. So let me start us off with our thesis today. God instructs his people about assembling together to worship him. So we are given a New Testament order by example. In other words, by pattern. And I think personal Bible study will turn you into heretic without worship. Because I think that you'll end up leading your own cult. If you know your Bible but you do not understand worship, therefore corporately God instructs and intends his people to gather together on a regular basis the first day of the week and meet in order to worship. So Sunday is the day which redefines our existence and defines our life 
as we come to adore a living God. So we come to recognize together how God has provided for us in the six days prior, and we're confident by faith we're going to do the math based on his promises. He's going to provide for us in the six days ahead. So I think Sunday is really the true hump day and the hinge day in our experience. We get that opportunity to lay aside worry and work so that we can worship. Why? Because we need the reminder of his resurrection to bring us out of death. We need the reminder of his indwelling to bring us strength. And we need the reminder of his power to bring us hope. And it has to be that way because when you get to the very end, the books of Zechariah and Revelation They describe myriads of people gathering in Jerusalem for worship. And at that same moment, we are gathered around the throne for fellowship of that worship. So that's kind of just part of the multivalence of your Bible. So that's a new word today, along with Fibonacci and uh, fractals. You can add the word multivalence because multivalence is a, my way of describing the practicality of the Word of God because multivalence means there are multiple applications simultaneously. And only the Bible can do that. Just like only the universe can be a fractal. It's a fingerprint of God showing that God created it. And it's, and it's amazing me that all the scientists get together and, you know, they say that we got to build these uh, big uh, satellite receivers so that we can scan the skies because we know there's life out there and, uh, you know, it's evolved someplace else and so we can get their radio signals and we will prove evolution is true because there's life on other planets uh, evolved just like us and yada, 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 and they put all this together, they get absolutely nothing and they are totally blind to that cosmic level practicality. And, and it's just such an amazing thing. There's a lot of ways that Newtonian physics will not work uh, on the uh, massive gravitational level, nor on the sub- subatomic level, and yet the practicality works all the way through. So you can see it from the cosmos, you can see it in, in quantum physics, and so what I want to show you from Scripture today is how um, right now, yeah, physically, we are on this earth, and yet we have a spiritual representation in heaven by worship. So while in the millennium, Jews and Gentiles will be physically on earth, they will have their spiritual representation through us. Now the problem is, as I see it, it's how we've reversed what we have received. So we have so many people in Christianity today who are one and done, and they only worship on Sunday. They have no private devotion daily with the Lord. Um, Brett Bartlett said on one of the recent Theology Roundtable podcasts, the best truth we need flows from a daily relationship with Jesus Christ. His dad, Dr. Billy Bartlett, described it this way, a daily interactive love relationship with Jesus Christ as the primary relational pursuit in your life. His corollary was a life that loves being expressed by inward and outward holiness publicly and privately because there is no public worship without private worship and private devotion. So, 
Peter tells us, if you turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, he tells us God has constructed your life in a certain way, after a pattern. And there are things that he'll do because you adore him alone. And while salvation is instantaneous, fellowship has to be continuous. Just like doing math, you've got to do it all the time. And that is shown by the fact that you usually do not receive things from God for which you do not go to God in prayer and ask for. Now God's, you know, grace, his common grace is open to all and open to us even when we're not open to him. But, but, but really, when we talk about believers in this dispensation, your blessings are going to be manifested because you came to him. And so by that same token, there are other things God will not do except in the strength of us coming together in corporate worship. So this is our first, first point for study. Personal worship has to be balanced with collective gathering. And this is simply the doctrine of worship, which we have, I think, in you know, modern Laodicean Christianity, too often ignored. Uh, myriads of the scriptures uh, endorse this, but I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want us to use this as the basis for our biblical theology. In LFBI, uh, we teach a class, and the course catalog is called Systematic Theology. It is only called Systematic Theology so that it will transfer to other schools who teach Systematic Theology. I teach it, and I always call it a survey of theology, and in the very first class I go through, the drawbacks of all the alternative theologies, including systematic theology, open theology, all, you know, all these other dogmatic theology, all these other theologies. Uh, we want to be biblical in our theology. So, so we're going to start here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is the one to whom Jesus reveals that he's going to build a congregation of believers which are called the church. So let's perform simple English Bible exegesis on this salient passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 4. To whom, stop, whom is the object form of the pronoun who, and a pronoun always has an antecedent. In other words, it has a noun it refers back to. So the pronouns are like the shadows of the nouns in your Bible. And in this case, the antecedent is the gracious Lord in verse 3. So, to whom, verse 4, coming, stop. Peter, in effect, is asking you this morning, are you coming to him? When you attend church, are you coming to him? When you open your Bible, are you coming to him? Now notice the ye in verse 5, since ye is you all, because Peter happens to be talking not about our individual coming, but our collective gathering. So our coming together as living stones to form one edifice for worship, which he calls a spiritual house, down in verse 5. Now that kind of takes this out of any type of future doctrinal context, uh, it's, uh, you know, because it is the, this is the match meet to 1 Timothy 3.15 and Ephesians 
So when I put it all together from Scripture, let me hit you with my sidewalk definition. Uh, And, you know, I think we'll probably get 50 definitions of worship as we go through um, this certainty conference together, which is a good thing. Uh, So worship is, in, in its essence, is adoring God as a living person to glorify Him, predicated on an offering, starting with your heart, and extending to your lips and your actions. It is your body and blood in sacrifice. And these are Bible-defined ingredients of worship. Uh, Worship is latent and incipient in Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel both bring offerings to the Lord. Genesis 4 verses 3 and 4. Since Abel paid attention to the pattern... He looked at it. He brought the same form. So he had respect for the blood sacrifice, which was the same thing that God had used to cover his parents' sin. So he followed. He did the math. He followed the pattern. He counted on that. And then the Lord had respect to Abel and his offering. And that passage defines the function of worship for us. And it amazes me today how we run away from good Bible words and Bible principles and Bible precepts and Bible promises. So here's our second point for study. Worship was never about bringing an offering or bowing or kissing, which are other New Testament words translated worship. Worship was always about access to the presence, pleasure, and acceptance which that offering afforded. So if you had no blood sacrifice, well, you bet ask somebody. A king could have gone and asked Abel for a lamb. Uh, you, you, and, if, and if nothing else was available, you bent your neck and you bowed your head and you offered yourself in reverence and homage to a superior being. The necessity of sacrifice is shown in the first appearance of the word, Genesis 22, verse 5, because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son Isaac. So have you really come to God through worship? Do not come just to hear the praise team and the choir. I mean, they have a place in leading us, but they're only the guides. When we come together, we better be coming to hear the Holy Spirit speak, not in response to our attendance, but in response to our worship. So the praise team matters because they lead us to sing to the Lord, and the preacher matters because he teaches us the Word of God, and the the saints matter because they come to meet with us as we meet with the Lord, and that thanksgiving redounds to the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 4.15. But if you take Jesus Christ out of the picture at any point, then this might as well be the set of Dr. Phil. Or maybe in in some churches, a good country music concert. So when we come to meet Jesus, we are not like your fraternity or your sorority where they organize in order to socialize. No, we come to be common partakers of the Word of God. So we come with an agenda to adore Christ as being the superior being in whom we place our trust. So in coming to church, verse 4, we are coming as unto a living stone. Stop. 
He's a living stone. In the next verse, we are lively stones, and we are lively because we are alive by the life which the living stone gives us. Now, a living stone is a stalagmite because it's a rock pyramid that rises from the floor of a, a cave as it grows from, from the accumulation of water. Uh, a living stone is a pearl, and that is the gate to the final assembly of believers in the bride, as the bride of Christ, Revelation 21, 21. So we grow into two living structures According to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, we grow into being a pillar holding forth the truth and, and ground a foundation for that truth being held forth. So the church is the, of the living God, believers assembling together for the one who is worshipped, is the house of God in this dispensation. Our living stone, described in verse 4, is Jesus at the second advent, and we see that happening in Daniel 2, verse 35. That stone is so alive, it grows into a mountain and fills the whole earth in the millennium. But at his first coming, Peter says in verse 4, he was disallowed indeed of men. So in verse 7, Jesus is the stone which the builders disallowed. Israel was a physical household with a physical temple which they had for worship, but the leaders of the nation would not allow Jesus Christ to be their cornerstone, their heaven-descended capstone of that kingdom. So God replaced them spiritually in this dispensation with his house, the church, and his priests, every believer. So he is a living stone, and we are stones who are lively because we are growing up in him, and we grow in maturity, we grow in numbers. Uh, we are built up as that spiritual house. So says verse 5, and so says Paul in Ephesians 2.21, and we now become the leaders of true worship for the entire world. You know, Delana was telling me about a show she was watching. Um, uh, I don't know if it's YouTube or what it is, but uh, some guy who travels the world, and in each episode he, enter he goes one place and he interviews the people to investigate every culture on the face of the planet. And in every single culture he goes to, it is swamped in superstition and false worship. And that doesn't matter if it's Hindus in India or, or Amish in America. So the, so the suburban American reads the book, The Secret, and puts faith in the, the law of attraction. Uh, the urban American gets into angel numbers and tattoos 444 on his head above his ear because that is how much he believes in that. And Jews have their Kabbalah and you know, Amish have theirs and, and, and of course Catholicism has theirs and we are swamped in false worship. So be careful, be very careful, because after the additional conjunction but in verse 4, it says Jesus is chosen of God and precious. And the way that word is used in verses 4 and 6 does not mean that he's precious to you. That's irrelevant. It means he is precious to the one who chose him, who is God. 
So you must now worship him, not angel numbers, not esoteric laws, not a chi and eastern energy systems. So what are you doing right now to get ready for his second coming? What are you doing right now to be ready for the second advent? You are doing nothing if you do not worship. When we come to worship collectively, a mystery happens and uh, we'll have you keep a finger here, but go to the book of Hebrews, because the author of Hebrews breaks it down. And many Christians do not know this, uh, how we come to exalt the Lord collectively. Uh, a whole series of spiritual events ta- takes place. And, it, and again, this is so difficult to maybe teach on and understand to some degree, because worship is done in the world, the only, the only place we can do worship is in this world, and yet it sets off a corresponding expression in the heavenlies, which redounds back down to your activity on earth. Now let me open a window on that word. My illustration of this irrefutable idea would be Daniel, because here's Daniel, and Daniel's praying, and you know what? I, you know, I don't know what many of you who are pastors, you have people come to you all the time and you know, they're afraid because of the demonic and this and that. And, and uh, the, you know, they're so uh, wigged out over spiritual warfare. Okay, well, but hold it. Spiritual warfare does not affect, affect us. We affect spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare didn't affect Daniel, but Daniel affected spiritual warfare. And so once Daniel got to praying, that affected what was going on in the heavenlies and enabled Michael to eventually come out, help out Gabriel to get Gabriel down um, to answer Daniel what he was asking about. Okay, plow in the field, new math, I know. Uh, 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 We like to teach how to study the Bible. What we need to teach is how to read the Bible. Uh, You know, when I was young, and this was so long ago, this was like the late 1900s. <laughs> the, uh, I don't know if it was the fad, but the challenge was to read the Bible through every 60 days. So you read it basically about an hour a day, and, uh, and maybe, maybe once or twice you'll read an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, you read it through in 30 days. Now, do that a few times, and you learn how to read the Bible, because you begin to see its multivalent aspects. And multivalence means it has several simultaneous doctrinal applications all at once. I would say we like to put things in one of three boxes as to application, historical, inspirational, prophetic, and we men, we sliced it with razor blades. But in the Old Testament, the prophets particularly, there are times where there are layers of simultaneous, even doctrinal application, and sometimes places where the application changes within the space of a single verse. So so go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews, I think, is the most Old Testament prophetic New Testament book. And so, so like here in chapter 12, which is not exclusively you, but includes another group with you because it is multivalent. It is a fractal, and you can, look, you can see that, and it is multivalent. And that's why you can have 144,000 Jews standing on Mount Zion in a tribulation partial rapture, 
which you see here in the middle of this chapter, uh, talked about in Revelation 14, 1 to 5, and Psalm 27, verse 5, and many other places. But the, the one key phrase in all of Paul's epistles is in Christ. Therefore, you have your own spirit sitting in the same spot around the throne at the same moment while your body is right here worshiping. Ephesians 2, 6, Revelation 4, 4. So the Bible's multivalence like that is what proves it's the fingerprint of God. It is a supernatural book. It's just like looking at the universe. You look at the universe and you can't see God. You have shut your eyes. You can't see that, he, that there's a creator. You've shut your eyes. So that, so that multivalence proves not just that the Bible is a supernatural book, I mean, the Sibylline oracles were supernatural books. But what it proves is this book is God's book. So this is, this is God's book for us. And much rather than smooth it out and make it readable, which is what all the new translations do. And rather than do that, and, you know, just like, uh, you know, Steve alluded to, it's like, well, why did he say it that way? And that doesn't seem like the uh, verb tense that should go there, and this doesn't seem to match up to that. Well, only the King James Bible keeps it all accurate like that. So this was a passage as amazing to the Hebrews as it is to us because Paul pulls back the torn veil on worship. And yet we fail to take literally the words which we read. Now watch, he starts with a negative, verse 18, for you are not come unto the mountain that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, which is exactly what they had come to under Moses. I mean, Mount Sinai was tangible, and the holiness of God through the law prohibited any intimate contact with that mountain. Uh, if you live in the millennium, it's not quite like that, as, as uh, Steve was showing us from, uh, you know, a temple in Ezekiel and like you see from Psalm 65.1 and John 12.15 and Revelation 14.1. And, and it is likewise not like that today when we get together. So let me open a window on that word. Steve, uh, Steve's using math uh, as, as, as the illustration. Let me, use, uh, let me use something else. Just like water and wind both flow from a region of higher pressure to an area of lower pressure electrons flow across a gradient from higher concentration to lower concentration. But in flowing to that area of lower concentration, they bring to that spot a higher power. And so the difference in potential between those two spots is represented by volts. And the amount of electrons flowing is called current, which is that flow is measured in amps. Resistance is any impedance to that electron flow. And I know you lost a COVID year of, in, you know, you had to do in-person learning, but I still don't see why you're not getting this. <laughs> because the scriptures say that the spirit and the word are connected to your life through worship. So true spirituality is a lot like getting electrocuted. 
Well, it was sort of. I mean, one time I was watching Discovery Channel, and, and it was a show about men in helicopters who go up in helicopters to work on high power lines. I mean, talk about dangerous jobs. And, and after a minute, those, those power lines started talking to me. Now, you know I ain't crazy, because I did say you ain't talking to me, but lines said, no, Alan, look, Shakespeare said there's sermons in stones. So God told me to give you a practical lesson from the power lines. I said, because he said, look, we're just like a lot of you Christians. I said, what can you possibly have in common with a, with a believer? And the power, power line said, Alan, you can touch a high voltage line as long as either you are insulated or there is a way for the power to equalize without electro electrocuting you. I said, so? He said, so power companies develop insulated poles they call hot sticks in order to service energized lines. So you don't have to take the power down in order to service the line. He said, but that's a lot like a lot of you Laodicean Christians today. In these last days of evangelicaldom and Baptisthood, you cannot get energized in worship because you are too insulated against the authority of God's true word. No Bible, no power, no scriptures, no flow. He said, Alan, don't be slow. Because linemen are able to barehand a line. A person can come into safe contact with a live line as long as his body is raised to the same voltage as the line that he is touching. So then because the line and the lineman are at the same voltage, the current is equalized. So what had happened is the lineman uses a conducting wand to make a connection to the wire and bond to that live wire at the same voltage. He said, wait, Alan, in the Old Testament, the Jews and even their animals could not touch that mount because they had no indwelling Holy Ghost. No way to bring that mount and those people to the same energy without God killing his people. But in the New Testament, you got the Holy Ghost at salvation. And now God's word becomes the wand to bring us to the same energy level as God's spirit. Shaman Alaranda should have bought a Honda. Look, I know that speaking in tongues is not for today, but I wish it was. Because I do it right there. So stay in Hebrews 12. Let's, let's see in this uh, first uh, uh, introductory study. I know um, saying introductory makes kind of scary, like, wow, what's tomorrow going to be? But anyhow, what happens... When you worship, and I, I've chosen 12th chapter Hebrews because the words we and ye are a multivalent reference to the church age saint as well as the tribulation saint, as is apparent from these first four verses. But, but I, I need you to know what worship is, and, and so we know that, but now what is it that worship does? And except for an appearance of Jesus uh, to tribulation saints alluded to in the middle of this chapter, I can take this, what is said here, in exactly the same sense as Paul writes Ephesians 2.6, uh, and that means this is what is surrounding me as I sit together in Christ in heavenly places. So, first off, then, this is my descriptor of the biblical phraseology. In other words, um, 
all storylines are from the Bible, right? I mean, you do know all storylines are from the Bible, but the Matrix set of movies had it backwards because they thought this world was the reality and you had to get back to it, and in actuality, we have to be uh, hooked up someplace else. So number one, you are hard, I'll phrase it this way, you are hardwired to heaven. Verse 22, Hebrews 12 says, but ye are come unto Mount Sion. Why? Because you are in Christ, equalized current. Now, no doubt this is a promise of a literal rapture to some tribulation saints, but Paul's point to the church is, you're sitting right there. You are sitting right there. Now, what it takes for a Jewish saint is transportation, but all it takes for us is acknowledgement of God's word and worship. Verse 22, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, which will not come down from God, where it is being prepared for us, Right now, Jesus is preparing that place for us until the new heaven and the new earth appear. So Jews come to God under Moses at a different mount, but these saved Hebrews, being part of the same bride, enter the same city as we do. Revelation 21, verses 2 and 10. That is why there are not two bodies of Christ. So when we worship God in spirit, we enter that heavenly sign. And the James gang uh, says Zion with an S, not Zion with a Z, because Zion is where the Son is as high priest. And he sits on a throne of grace, which we can approach bodily right now and boldly through our spirit, Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. And it is filled with mercy and help in time of our need, just like he will be approachable in prayer to the tribulation Jews. So, so we are in New Philly, but when we collectively gather together to worship, we are spiritually energized with a heavenly city by the wand of faith in God's word, the wand of biblical authority. Your spirit, your inner man, at the point of you worshiping the Lord, is given opened eyesight to a whole new realm that Paul calls heavenly places. And in that transaction, voltage is equalized between you and the Lord on the power line of his words. And you are an overcomer. And even if you get squashed, you're still the overcomer. Because the variable in math is the resurrection. You're still the overcomer. So this is our third point for study because that means when we come into the fellowship of worship, we enter into a place of spiritual activity. We enter into a place of spiritual activity. When we got saved, we were spiritually transported to a literal spiritual place as individuals already established in the heavens. Our angel is there where we will one day physically, spiritually dwell. So the high-energy spot where saints who have fallen asleep in Jesus dwell in their literal spiritual body right now. So right now, as you sit simultaneously under my voice and hopefully the Holy Spirit's voice, you are simultaneously two places at once. You are in the mortal material matrix with your body, but if you are a sincere worshiper of Jesus, then you see how you are seated in and connected to the heavenly Jerusalem. I mean, this is better than any study of the Nephilim, I think. Uh, now, 
Uh, I'll take Mothman any day, but, but uh, you know, better than some of the other stuff we tend to give ourselves over to, because if you are plugged into that city of God, which is also called the great city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, then second, second, this number two, you are engaged with every angel who is worshiping. Why? Because you are present with those angels. Watch verse 22. And supply the ellipsis. That's what you do in English Bible exegesis. Supply the missing words. And ye are come to an innumerable company of angels. These angels are ordered in divisions of 10,000, just like the Lord's saints are in Jude verse 14, because that is what a company is. And, And so why would we say that we are with the angels. Alan, why do you say it like that? Well, uh, because I think that, in fact, they may currently be uh, believers who have died and are present with the Lord. Now, keep your finger here. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1. You remember when the church was praying for Peter uh, because Herod had put him on death row in Acts chapter 12. And when the Lord sprung him from his cell, he went to John Mark's mother's house where the church was praying. And Rhonda heard his voice, but she wouldn't open the gate. And when, he went, when she went back and she told the others what she heard, they said, it is his angel. It is his post-mortem appearance which you saw. Herod killed him, but God let, him, let you hear him on the way out of the city so that you know, it would tell us we can now quit praying. Well, the saints who have fallen asleep in Jesus are waiting for us to come up so that we can come back with them at the second advent. They add to the number of angels. Chew on that for a minute. Uh, But you may say, Hebrews 1 verse 14, are angels not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Wait, wait. You know, we always apply that verse wrong. We are not the heirs of salvation. We do not inherit salvation. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace for us. Now, we inherit a particular glory in heaven. We inherit a mansion in the new Jerusalem. 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5, Galatians 5, 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 41 and 42. But we will be ministers in eternity to those who do inherit life in eternity. And we are sent forth to minister to the remnant of those Jews who do inherit salvation in terms of eternity, where we will minister uh, to those who are uh, born physically, uh, later generations that go on. So in the resurrection, every son of God now in the church age is as the angels, according to Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 30. And we will minister as an appearance of the Lord to people in eternity who inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 6, verse 6 and 7, 2 Peter 3, 13. So those who are already there, or the angels, if you prefer, say, hey, you guys down there, look up. Our company is a great cloud up here operating and acting as your witnesses, Hebrews 12, 1. So the judgment is the judgment seat of Christ, but they will be the jury, or they will 
be more than two or three witnesses as, as to uh, equitable judgment and righteousness being meted out. And since you can, you know, they're saying, look, since, since we're up here waiting for you to get here, you can join us in advance when you worship. And that is why there is a spiritual provision from God to help you worship him in spirit. And it's invisible, but it's no less real. Earth's earliest believers were told this. I think we need to know this. I mean, every time I stick my head into our harvest kids, which is our K through fifth grade kids, uh, when they are getting their praise on, you know, at the beginning of their time, they're, they're doing their praise. I think they know this better than we do as adults. Satan is very much against this right now because this is his world today. He is the prince and power of our air. There is a spirit of the age. He is energizing the people who belong to him, and he wants to give you enough resistance that you stay grounded. Let the whole church say, ohms. So we stand no chance in this life if we do not worship. But now, not only do we stand a chance, we cannot be defeated. I mean, wait, as long as you stand, you cannot be defeated. As long as you keep going, you cannot be defeated. As long as you keep trusting, you cannot be defeated. Why? Because where they are today, we are now. And verse 23 says, Ye are come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. Well, we just talked about that. But next, and to God the judge of all. So what happens when you worship? Well, this is number three. You're put in the presence of the judge. I mean, I mean, what what happened to Bible Bob? And I, I've asked this question of a lot of people I've seen over the years because the thing that has struck me is, uh, in, uh, like in the case of the discipleship lessons we use, um, lesson 16 is the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm just like, man, how did they forget that lesson? How could you do that and ignore the judgment seat of Christ? You know Why? Because no worship. Hebrews 10.30 says the Lord shall judge his people. But in our case, the judge invites us to come into his presence by way of his own righteousness because the sacrifice of blood was made just so that we can worship. So we all one day come to the judgment seat of Christ. He is our judge and judging, and this righteous judge will be giving out crowns from that seat, 2 Timothy 4.8. Next, and, and, and okay, and, and you remember we were uh, talking about, and I don't remember if it was Troy or it was Kenny, but somebody talked about fire in relationship to worship. And the fire consumes everything else. Verse 23, And ye are come to the spirits of just men made perfect. So, I, you know, I don't want you to see something that's not here, but I do want you to see everything that is being said. Number four, you are connected with all the saints of the Old Testament. So they are the just men and women who are now perfected when being up there and when we get there. 
So, so, so we are not just, we are justified, but they are the just. So when we come to the fellowship of worship, we are invisibly routed to a wireless network, and this Wi-Fi is better than 5G or 6G or whatever G it's on, G-Wiz. It's better than G-Wiz. It is better than Zoom because we're all in a new city with a new crowd participating with every other saint in the same worship of him as Lord. Now wait. So we are doing imperfectly down here what they are already doing perfectedly up there, and yet that is what connects us. Say, Alan, I thought I couldn't get there until I go to heaven. No, you don't understand. If you are in Christ, you are made to sit together in heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. Why? Because God wants to make something known in heavenly places by Christ's bride, which is his church, Ephesians 3.10. So since we decided to worship her angel strut, then worship takes place as a spiritual transmission of power. And we're whisked into this new atmosphere by his spirit as we focus on him through his word. And this is just simple English Bible exegesis. So finally, finally, verse 24. (coughs) And ye are come to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. So number five, I'll phrase it this way. You're given Israel's blessings as a Gentile bride. You're given the tribe's blessings, the blessing of the tribe because you're the bride. So you're the Rebecca that the Holy Spirit brought to Isaac after he gave her blessings, a gold earring, two bracelets, jewels of silver, gold, and raiment. There's one mediator between God and all mankind, 1 Timothy 2.5. So when we worship in the presence of Jesus, the Spirit of God is our transportation and the Word of God is our transmission line. And that makes us live-wired or lively stones. So when we worship, we are interactive with the spiritual realm. And I don't know how you think you get spiritual insight, but you do not get insight from the Holy Bible without the Holy Spirit. So you got to worship God in the Spirit, Philippians 3.3, not in the vastness of your big brain thinking. You come to a new city with a new crowd, even relating to Old Testament saints who have gone before getting connected with Jesus, and the mediation of the blessing of their covenant comes to you. So here's our fourth point for study, the importance of worshiping the Lord is that we get the benefits of the new covenant routed to us. I mean, it's the Jews' new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31. But because they rejected Jesus and crucified him, Well, it's still not our new covenant because the covenants pertain to the Jews, but it is new covenant spillover into our New Testament. And since Jesus is present in our Jerusalem above, Galatians 4.26, by his blood, Hebrews 10.19, then verse 24, Hebrews 12, verse 24 says, and ye are come to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood carried a message to God because Abel followed the pattern, did the math, and had correct worship. It was the worship of a shepherd who offered a lamb, and he was slain for it. 
But Jesus' blood carries an even better message, Hebrews 9.14, and the message of a blood sprinkling which offers complete redemption now, complete redemption, not just covering sin, taking it away. And that is a high power line which now transmits to us so that we can transmit to others. It is the blessing of an inner cleansing by the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus sprinkles us with his blood, your fellowship with God is maintained. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. So you don't just come to church. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens, as it does every time you come. When we gather in fellowship with our faith in the word, worshiping the Lord. And that is why Satan wants to corrupt or keep you away. First, from personal worship, but second, from assembly worship. He does not want you equalized to the same voltage as Jesus. He does not want you standing in God's city on God's mountain, because if you stand on that mountain and you worship, then you will realize where you are seated. You are sitting in a place of power. And when you realize the power that you have sitting in Christ, that transmits and changes everything on planet Earth. Oh, go back to... 1 Peter chapter 2, I, I hope this is important to you because if you get the benefits of your relationship with Jesus right, the only way you're going to get that is the only valid connection is through worship. And not only do we have a new environment which gives us new identity, there are also five things which identify us, not individually, but collectively. Verse 5, 1 Peter 2, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. So the house of worship is not the space we meet on Sundays. Well, well, it is, but only when you're here. And that's our fifth point for study. The house of God is the development of the lives of the people who assemble as the church of the living God on Sunday. So the church in its, in its essence is never cement blocks and paint and and I'm all for facilities because they facilitate ministry but the building is not the church unless you are in attendance worship is what transforms a gym into a sanctuary an auditorium into a sanctuary and a car into a temple and your heart into a cathedral that's our sixth point for study worship takes something used for common purposes and makes it holy Do you understand the words coming out of my mouth? Worship does that. It sanctifies common, ordinary life for supernatural ministry. And it is a transmission for the power so you can mind the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, have the power of the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. This is why God could go from the tabernacle tent to the temple of Solomon. It could be mobile, And that's worship, and it could be stationary because of their worship. So wherever you are, that's where he is, wherever you worship. And you you need, all you need in order to have worship is to bring an offering in the presence of an altar. 
And so, so this building becomes a sanctuary when the living stones show up, and we are the lively stones because of the living one that we, living rock that we worship, and because we worship a living one through his living word, we are growing and growing, and we're being perfected into the fullness of his stature, Ephesians 4.13. Now that explains a whole lot right there. Uh, But I don't have time to press on that point like I would like to. So notice how verse 5 says, God is building up a spiritual house. God's only building one house, not houses. And he wants you to be a living block that fits into his one temple. And since God and his word are holographic, they are a fractal, then you are likewise the temple even when your brick It's not time for your brick to assemble. And that holographic, fractal nature of the Word of God is Steve's topic, not mine. So, But yet a block, one block can be a great block, but in itself it cannot be a house. And you can be a great Christian. You know, you can be an okay Christian. But you cannot be as good as you can be if you do not gather with the body of Christ and worship. So there's not uniformity to the church. And for heaven's sake, there's not uniformity in a living faith fellowship uh, because we're all different. But there has to be unity in the church in order to have a stable structure because unity enables the common goals of worship which put all the blocks in, in place. So God uses pictures to teach us spiritual application and you're a living stone, but the purpose of your existence is not to talk about what a great stone you are. Your purpose is to find your place in the house. Stop being a rolling stone. Okay, that just triggered some of you when your, who for your prime was in the late 1900s. And your purpose is to find your place in the house to build that church as a local and visible expression of the one body of Jesus Christ. The implications of this are staggering. So Peter spends more time on this than anything else. I won't, but he does. Uh, You get a new environment, you have a new identity, and uh, you're given a new purpose and meaning to your life, verse 5, because ye are an holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. What are the spiritual sacrifices you offer up to God in worship? Now, these are not my ideas. Uh, I've listed them specifically because this is what the Scripture states. These are spiritual sacrifices. So these are acceptable acts of worship. And I'm going to have to cut across the field here, but I'm going to do the doggone thing. Because uh, if you do not have this all together in, in worship, you don't have the Bible doctrine. Uh, so notice, if you will, how the first acceptable sacrifice, this is letter A, is offering your living body to God, consecrated to Christ. Worship is in spirit, but it is done on earth, so it always involves your body or else you've not worshipped. Why? Because it requires a sacrifice of blood in order to worship. And if you thought that was not literal, you missed the multivalence of the Word of God. So let me fix it for you. When the Old Testament offerer brought their substitutionary sacrifice, that lamb or that ram or that animal, they were allowed to walk away as the living sacrifice. So offer your body as a sacrifice of worship 
and the parts of your body as tools for God to use to fulfill his purpose in eternity. Second, second acceptable sacrifice is fruit from your lips in prayer and praise. And that's why we sang, in order to praise him with our lips. Now that part is easy because it's a gift. That's easy peasy. Here's what makes it a sacrificial offering. Because Hebrews 13, 15 says, it has to be done continually. And doing it continually is going to cost you something, baby Baba. I'm just saying, there will be times in your life, like in the life of Job. And yet Job blessed the name of the Lord after he lost everything and everyone. Worship. Job 1.20. Third sacrifice, is letter C, is good works. You, in other words, let me, let me uh, give you my sidewalk definition here so you'll understand it. You've got to be a disciple-making disciple. You've got to be involved in ministry somehow. If you serve, that service has to be your ministry. Next, letter D, giving money. Share a part of what God's given you so you can partake in benefiting the program of God in the life of others. Giving which connects people to the gospel, to the church, and to God's purpose for eternity. And finally, letter E, edification through the word. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. We'll get ready to close. God created a spiritual house of living stones because he knows none of us are strong enough to survive on our own. Now, we're all quarried out of the pit of sin, but we are cemented together by the grace of God, and that means we got to touch that is why the Bible has so much to say about the church edifying itself, building up itself corporately, including Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Teach, why? For what purpose? So you can get your degree, so you can, you can be smart? So, no, teach, so that you can teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And that's why you can come to church in one mood or attitude and leave in another mood. Well, what happened to change your attitude? Well, what had happened was you entered Christ's presence by singing in concert with someone else and receiving instruction from the Word with someone else. Note those two things in Colossians 3.16. We pray together and participate together so that we can be changed together. 1 Corinthians 14. There are things that God will do for you in fellowship and worship which will not happen the same way or to the same extent if you are not worshiping with us. Why? Simply because you are a living stone and you are in your place with others. And that is why we got to stay on the same page. And, 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 you know, so all of our lives have to be moving toward God, building us up together. 1 Corinthians 14, 12, Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. It all has to be done in unity to edification. And when all that energy comes together, then heat should shoot out. And that is why the issue is not just you. The issue is, does my brother, my sister need me? 
maybe, maybe I ought to phrase it that, this way. The issue is, what is it that my brother and my sister need from me? Okay, to wrap it all up, 1 Peter 2.9, you're not only a new house, you're a new race, but you are a chosen generation. Okay, stop. You are a seed which has been generated, Ephesians 2.1. What's your purpose for eternity? Well, in this context, verse 9, it is that ye are a royal priesthood. In verse 5, he calls it a holy priesthood. So, so we got a king thing going for us and a, and a priest thing going for us, and it doesn't matter who people think you are. In here, you are both nobody and you are somebody. You are nobody in the sense you are no greater than anybody else or whoever is sitting next to you. But being saved by his grace, that's made you somebody. So you may be a nobody, but don't let anybody tell you that you're nothing. You are Christ's royalty because, verse 9, but ye are an holy nation. Now, there are four views of the body of Christ. They're similar to God's description of Israel, but we have a spiritual status, so it does not mean we are perfect people, but our passion is for holiness, and that means we do not paint over sin, we pain over sin, we mourn and grieve for our rebellion, we do not hide it, we bring it to the cross to be crucified. So the collective consciousness of the saints is what constitutes us as a redeemed Nation, and when we come together, we are to define ourselves as a holy nation with a heavenly capital, a heavenly, we are heavenly citizens with a heavenly constitution whose passion is to live as a church as well as a, as a person to please God. Now, what does that make us? Verse 9, but you are, oh, that makes you peculiar people. Which means in James gang parlance, it, it means God's private property. Well, what is this purpose for being chosen, verse 9, is that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath caused you, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The purpose is worship. And I understand these descriptions of you are so close to what God says of the Jews in the Old Testament. All the hyper-dispensationalists limit this verse to Jews in the tribulation, but that won't do. Not, not in this last phrase and not in the next verse. Because passing from darkness to light, that's Paul's expression for you. So anybody wants to know what heaven looks like, they ought to be able to visit this church and get a foretaste of glory divine. How will we fulfill that? Here's how, verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now, the Southern Baptist version. Christian Standard Bible, and the NIV change fleshly lust to sinful desires so you don't know the location that the enemy is shooting at you from. The location is your own flesh, so don't esteem it, crucify it. We are strangers to this world. We are pilgrims on the way home, and the sacrifice and offering we make in the flesh is what proves that to others. So, verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And my thing is this. If sinners can come out of the closet, why can't you? 
Hello, somebody. How come you cannot self-identify as we, the peculiar people? They need to see a a living lifestyle from a lively stone. Because then on the day that God finally breaks through to them and they are unblinded and they start to consider it and even receive it, they'll say, you know, I know what that is because I saw that once before. And the connection is discipleship because we worship. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Are you ashamed of the gospel? I think it was Steve used the word shame today. And there's some things you ought to, we ought to be ashamed of. Gospel's not it. You will not be shy or as shy if you'll give yourself to worship. I mean, it puts you in a new environment. What did we just see? Puts you in a new environment, reminds you of a new identity, which in turn, both those things empower you to live a new lifestyle. And if your worship does not do that for you, then it is insufficient worship. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Go ahead and stand, just bump elbows with your neighbor as we pray. Father, we thank you today. Lord, I thank you for the time we've had shared together, even just so far. It's only the first day first weekday of this conference. And God, we commit and commend to to you and to uh, your grace and the word of your grace the days that we have ahead. Um, God, to open our eyes to such a new thing, so radical, it creates revival in our heart, revival in our midst, revival when we go back, revival in our churches. Let us be, because of worship, all that we should be in this life for you so that we can prepare ourselves and others through discipleship, prepare them for your purpose, for them in eternity. We ask it in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.